everyone. Welcome to North American Deer Talk. This is episode 41. Uh, today we have a fundamentals podcast with Jared Berry. I hope you all enjoy that. Uh, I just want to mention that um, if you are uh, not following us on our very various social media platforms, uh, please do so. Uh, we try to post content at least on a daily basis um, somewhere in one of our our excuse me, spheres of, of uh, influence. So whether that be a podcast like the one you're listening to or watching uh, on YouTube or, you know, in the Apple podcast store, um, you know, make sure you subscribe to those. If you want to leave us a review, that would be super. Um, make sure you subscribe and, and like the videos on YouTube. Uh, that really helps kind of uh, push the show out if you think the content is, is worthwhile. And, um, you know, you can share it with other folks. Check us out on Instagram. Just type in Servid Solutions. Um, you can find the North American Deer Talk uh, Facebook group. You can check out us on, um, you know, our website, www.servidsolutions.com. There's so many ways to ingest some of the different forms of content that we have. Uh, with that said, I hope you enjoy the show today. Jared and I did something a little different. And um, I think it turned out to be a, a really great show. So enjoy, and we'll see you all again soon. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Josh Newton, for another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is the Fundamentals Podcast. We got Jared Berry back on. Jared, how are you on this fine June 22nd, 2021? I'm, I'm wonderful. <laughs> what an intro, huh? So... Uh, Jared and I, uh, we live close enough together that we experience a lot of the same weather and it has been pretty poor outside, um, which has, has driven us inside outside of doing, uh, our normal chores, et cetera. So I, uh, shot him a quick message that, yo, we want to do a, a podcast. And he said, absolutely. Um, we're going to do something a little different here. Um, and, and Jared's agreed to do this. I've agreed to do this. So. We, we have each written down uh, two topics on a piece of paper, topics, questions uh, for one another. We don't know what those are. We don't know what each other has written. So one of us is going to ask the other person a question slash make a statement, and then they're going to respond to that, and then we're going to have a conversation. So we have uh, four uh, unique and individual topics to discuss today. Um, so it should be interesting to... Um, kind of gauge, gauge each other's uh, reaction, et cetera, and have a, a kind of freewheeling conversation about that. How's that sound, Jared? I'm in. Cool. Um, so I, I'll go first and kick this thing off. Um, what will you do different this fall slash winter to improve your fawning for 2022? That's an excellent question. Um, the I've been thinking about how I can leave about half of my what I call my doe side of the farm. It's probably about 12 acres in nine different pens. Um, how I can figure out my my breeding pens my numbers to to actually take about half of the farm and have the pens vacant from say october through uh 
maybe January or so, February, and then put low density uh, numbers of does into those pens um, in preparation for fawning. Um, generally, it might be March or April I put them in, but I think the way it's going to work to not overcrowd and overstress the breeding pens that I'm going to use this fall for breeding, I'm going to just maybe trickle some does out of those pens come, you know, the second cycle of breeding and, you know, say after that's over, so say it's late December, January, depending on the weather. Um, so then those pens kind of get a rest and I'm also going to take them to um, a, this is the goal, this is the plan, these are the ideas, um, to no more than four does per acre. Um, I know we talk about densities a lot in the past when you and I discuss things, but um, that's kind of my goal. And then, uh, and then the pens that I use for breeding will not be used for fawning, ideally. Um, and they will then be used to put yearling animal, yearling does into those pens come, you know, late winter, or early spring, um, at hopefully five to seven yearling does per acre on those pens. Um, trying to, to see what that looks like actually on paper and then what I can actually do on the farm. So, uh, I guess the gist of that is can I leave half of my farm vacant? Can I accomplish this um, without other consequences? Can I leave half of the, of the farm or the doe side of the farm um, vacant from, you know, mid-October uh, through, you know, fall and early winter? Um, just to that, relieve those. How is that different from what you're doing now? Like, what do you, what, what um, did you do this past year that um, is kind of the basis for, change there, there i have to think more into this to give you a, a real good answer but the, the, the short answer is i've always had deer in all the pens whether it's low density or high density there's just yeah. always been deer in these pens and um the other the other component of that is if i can leave these vacant and then come in and add more forages to through planting forages to these pens that get established in early fall um, that then are, are growing in early spring is kind of a, um, uh, a goal as well. So nice. it's, it's different in the sense that I've never actually had the ability to leave. I, I haven't been constructive enough to leave enough pens empty to, um, to have some vacancy, to have some, you know, whatever, three, four, five months off with no deer on them right. in the hopes that these pens are a little more clean, um, get a little more rest period that I have a, a healthier fawn crop in them as compared to pens that are continuously having animals on them. Um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So that's kind of, it was a real good question you asked because it's been on my mind. I don't know how I'm going to achieve this yet. I literally have just been trying to, you know, jot notes down what pens are going to be used for breeding. What's that density going to look like? Am I going to AI? So, um, you know, I, I don't know if I have enough pens to do it with the amount of does I want to fawn out next spring, mm. but at least probably half of the does that'll be fawning out can go into uh, pens that had three, four, five months of, of rest. And they're going to be going in at a density of, of four does, no more per acre, um, which I think we've talked about a lot lately, but, um, I'm really seeing four as the number I'm shooting for right now. Yeah. No more 
no more than that. Um, if anything, a little less than that. Um, which in turn leads me to a little less dose um, than what I had this year. But um, I think I think we can make it work. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, so two two years ago we had like zero snow, and I watched I watched all the all the pastures just just totally get destroyed. Um, I actually I have a a picture of uh, my daughter and I in I don't know maybe February or March going and grabbing sheds out of one of the buck pens and it's just nasty looking right like it's it's you can see there's just like a little bit of dead vegetation of course there's rocks because we have lots of of uh, rivers down here and and dirt right and i i just saw it and i was like wow because this winter we had snow cover the whole time and when spring came and the snow kind of melted off like there was green grass under there right i mean there yeah. was whatever there was still some green stuff yeah it was dormant yeah. it, it was insulated though there was a ton of coverage there and you know if i have to if i have to mark a fawning season thus far that's been good for me this has been the best one and i i have pretty much the same densities as i did the year before however i had a lot less stress on those pens that I'm fawning in than the previous year, but I also had snow cover. So like one of the, one of the fawning pens, um, there was no deer from October to, you know, March, none. And just sat there. And like when it, like when it came back on, like the, the grass and clovers and all that were growing again, that stuff was like, it was thick when I put those does in there. And I, you know, I threw four does in and like, I haven't, I honestly haven't touched a fawn in there. Like I just, I go in, I, I gave them, I did my, my gender check and I scored a fawn pace and like, I haven't done anything. And there's, yeah, you know, whatever, nine fawns or something like that. And they're doing great. Um, you know, is it a combination? Can I, can I get away with doing that without the snow? Right. Cause like, it's, <laughs> we never, we never have snow cover for four months ever. Um, and that yeah. was like, I don't know. Last year was an awesome winter, I think, for for deer farmers in the north. Anyway, um, it was perfect. Um, and the the other pens, like just minimal intervention. I had I had one uh, I had one fawn that I had to you know get my hands on and, and check, which was really weird because I had a two week old buck fawn um, that I could walk up to and and pet. Yeah, you're telling me about that. I was like, what's wrong with you, dude? And, uh, I don't know. He's like, he's still kind of my buddy. Like, he's just like kind of calm. I, it's, it's odd. It's really odd. Never really seen a, the demeanor yeah. of a, a buck like that. So anyway, no, I think, uh, I think that's interesting. I think that's really interesting. Um, are you going to be able to, so is it a matter of like just shifting does in the fall into like breeding pens with higher densities, which I think everybody does. And then giving that time off for a couple months just to have them settle or is that what kind of what you're thinking? Yes. That's kind of exactly what I'm thinking. You know, my live breeding pens, um, higher density somewhere in that. It's just what I'm thinking now, what happens, you know, come and this September, October, um, we can talk about that then what I actually did, but, um, what I'm, what I'm thinking is somewhere in that neighborhood of 10 to 15 does per acre with a buck. Um, from 
you know, for two months, two and a half months. Um, and then, you know, these pens, I say empty, they might be empty for two, three months completely, but I literally might throw like two or three does into an acre and a half pen, um, come December, kind of disperse them out. Um, yeah. And then, and then also I'm going to be breeding. I'm hoping to breed somewhere in the neighborhood of eight, eight ish, six to 10, but probably eight's probably gonna be my number of those that are going to be bred to a younger buck and then transition into my preserve uh, late winter, something like that, or early winter, I should what's, say, late fall, early winter. What's young? Probably a two-year-old. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Something that I at least got an idea of what he's doing. I have some really nice yearlings growing right now, um, which is kind of odd for me. Um, not nice, but Makes you uncomfortable. pretty good size. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but I don't think I'll use them. I'll probably use a two-year-old that is going to get released with the does out into the preserve. Um, and I'm going to try and release them. It's just an idea I have right now is not wait till March, uh, maybe like, you know, mid to end of December, depending on weather conditions and what it kind of looks like and feels like. Um, then get them out. And then that acre and a half, two-acre pen will be empty um, for a few months. Just, I'm just trying to reduce the impact, um, but also trying to find what's that fine line of producing what I want to produce. Um, but I think health is coming along, playing a role in that too. You know, we've said that before. I mean, yeah. how low can I bring my densities to still achieve the production I want to achieve, but also achieve minimal health issues? Um, and I wonder which. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just saying. Then a spring like I've had has just been. It has rained we had a couple inches of rain every week for the last eight weeks i mean since may it hasn't stopped raining yeah was that, um, that was that which, yeah it's not bad yeah it's no not, it's not bad it's just I, we had a spell three nights in a row that were under 40 degrees and i, and I had some losses there and yeah. i'm trying to weigh that through my head you know i think some of that is um i know some of it was maternal which I, I actually wrote a question down later on, but like the maternal bond, the colostrum transfer. Um, and then I think maybe just some weak fawns got taken out by, you know, cold, wet weather. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, and it's, I don't, yeah. It's, it's certainly possible subject. that, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that go on outside of our control and, you know, you just try to manage those risks or factors or whatever with different types of things, but it's, uh, it's hard. Sure. All right. Shoot, man. I'm ready. I'm ready for well, actually, it's a good transition. I'm going to switch to my what is became my third question Yep. Um, to transition off of that. Um, I just made a statement because of what I was just thinking. Maximizing maternal bond with your does and your fawns. Um, what can you do on the farm to maximize, you know, whether it's that uh, passive immunity, the transfer of immunity to your fawns through the colostrum? What are things that we can do? to maximize that bond in that first 24, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, I think there's a couple things. So dough, dough management, which is probably the hardest. um, And that is uh, knowing, knowing the demeanor of your does during fawning season and pairing up groups of does that mesh well together in confined environments. So, 
you know, having like some does have a legit attitude um, pre-fawning, post-fawning. Some does have a legit attitude post-fawning and not pre-fawning. And experience is just, and time with individual animals is going to tell you that. And this is where keeping notes is incredibly important because if you're, if you're running 50 or 60 does or more, um, you're never going to remember the things that are happening as you observe them uh, during fawning season. So for me, I have a much smaller herd. I have more of an intimate relationship with these animals. I just know them better, right? Because I, I can interact every day with all the animals, right? So um, I have, the, and, and the, 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 the flag, the question mark is the yearlings, right? Or the year and a half olds coming two-year-olds that are going to fawn because you've never seen them fawn before. So you don't know what it's like. And so like for me, um, half the herd or so is year and a half olds or two-year-olds this year. Um, so I'm learning how they're acting. And I have, uh, I got a group of four does in a, in a pasture. And uh, one of them is a, a pre-fawning hard ass slash post-fawning hard ass. And the there's another doe that was fine up until she fawned. And now she's working everybody else's fawns and does away. So I have a little, I got a little um, buck fawn in there that a couple days old, he's limping on his front foot. And I'm like, what is going on? Right. So I like go out, I check him. I cannot see anything like physically wrong with him. He's just not really using his, his front, his front right foot. Okay, fine. A couple days later, that goes away. And I'm like, cool. He's on the mend. Right. Three, four days after that, back leg got that thing up. And I'm like, okay, there's either some sort of bacteria going on or um, that, I, that I can't see. And I just keep watching them, watching them. And then I watch these does and what they're doing. And, you know, some of these does are mean to fawns. Like another fawn that's not theirs comes up and they'll, they'll hit it. You know, they'll just club it over the head. Yeah. They'll, they'll go to yeah. smell it and just toss it with their head. And some of these, you know, some of these fawns are, are small, right? Like, especially compared to, I mean, I, whatever, everybody's got big does, you know, you got 180 pound doe that's deciding to whack a fawn. Like it's going to hurt. Right. Or potentially they can kill them. Um, so like managing that and that's super hard. Right. So I can only imagine, so I got, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, like a, almost like a big wide pie, um, shaped, uh, pen and, you know, there's four does in there. It's probably like one point, we'll call it 1.1, 1.2 acres. They got, they got a good amount of room. Um, but they, you know, they still can work each other over and they are. Um, so as the fawns get older, it's less, it's less of a problem, but you know, if you have age classes of your does that are, or excuse me, of your fawns that are different, like one doe fawns May 10th. And then, you know, you got two more that fawn June 15th. We got a big difference in your age class, your fawns. So like there's all sorts of stuff that you, I think is worthwhile looking at. You almost need a big whiteboard and, you know, there's some things that we can't control, right? So if you're, if you're live breeding and you're not cedaring fawns, you're not gonna, you're not gonna like prime your, your fawning date for a certain window. I think that's a very useful tool during fawning. 
Um, so like, you know, you have a group of 10 does, they're split between two pens, you know, cedar and they're all live bred, you know, you cedar up a group, you cedar up a group, and then, you know, you filter them out. Um, I think that's a, a way to manage, you know, manage those, those fawns and those does. Um, and then like you come to like stress. So looking at, um, how you interact with animals on a day-to-day basis, not interrupting does while they're fawning, giving them safe places to have fawns, creating, you know, um, you know, constructive pieces of barrier and pens um, so they can fawn if you have open pastures, things like that. Um, I might've missed your point, but can you... Um... There probably wasn't one. I was just talking. <laughs> uh you were, I was on with you and then you started talking about cedar and does and I lost what your point was oh. with the cedar and does and the effect and what, how that goes into the, yeah. the management of her in those dope fawning pens. The age class of the fawns. So if you have a, oh. yeah, if you have a, a doe that freshens May 15th and um, she's aggressive and the other couple does in the pen don't fawn till June 15th. Well, she's got a month old fawn and now all the other small fawns are going to interact with her and she's going to beat them up. Right. So it, it, sometimes it's better if you have, like, if you can limit your dose to fawning in a certain window all at once and get all the craziness worked out. Right. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and sometimes it's the opposite again, like knowing, I think knowing the, the demeanor and personalities on these does during, um, during fawning is, is really important. And then maybe there's physical locations on the farm that they're more comfortable with. Um, you know, you, you can see sometimes when you move, like I have some older girls that are, you know, 10 and, um, they get a little stressed out when I put them in new places. So I know some people manage their, their deer opposite of what we might consider conventional. Um, some people move groups of does out and keep bucks in with the does year round during fawning and everything, right? They're breeders, um, which is, I think, unconventional. And then some people move the bucks out and keep the does together. Um, you know, keeping, maybe keeping age classes of does is helpful. Maybe those that get along. I mean, there's so many different things we can look at. Um, and I think it's a worthwhile kind of project now that sounds like a very boutique kind of thing for a for a farm right and some of these farms are very very big right like you have hundreds of does and we're talking about knowing personalities and managing deer and stuff like that maybe that's not an option but i think for a we'll call it a smaller scale farm you know sub i don't know 60 does i think it can be done you know and and if you have the space that really helps, right. If you have the space that really helps yeah. as soon as you bring down the social stress, because other stuff goes away. I was going to say on that, that hundred plus animal or hundred plus doe example you used, yeah. I, I think space and density can be something you can easily control. And if you have hundreds of those, I would hope that uh, you have a large farm with lots of space that you can manage those densities that way. Yes, you're still going to have things you're talking about that you might be able to control in a smaller herd, 
but just by the sake of density, you can eliminate a lot of problems. Um, one, a couple of things while you were talking that I was uh, thinking about, and um, the aggressive, I, I wrote down a note that says feeder placement. So Sorry, when I think of I missed, I missed a that pen that uh, I wrote down a note just, and I wrote feeder, feeder placement. Oh, feeder placement. So, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. And what I mean by that is multiple feeders, potentially, for me, it's even taken a, a small little two-gallon pail, whatever them plastic or rubber pails are, you know, and I have my main feeder sites. Maybe it's, I usually have like a, a, a open trough, then an enclosed or a covered trough. So two main feeder locations for a group of, say, four to six does um, and their fawns. But then um, when I see that a doe is getting aggressive around the feeders at night, so she's Anytime another doe comes to the feet, even within 15 yards of her, 15 feet of her um, at the feeder next to her, she wants to come over and chase her off the feeder. So simple things like taking a pail, walking 20 yards, 30 yards across the pen or just away from their main feeder site, I think can help ensure that, you know, those does are all at least getting feed when they all want to come down and feed because they generally seem to want to feed at the same time. Or at least I got them on a cycle on the farm where they're coming in the evenings or mornings whatever i'm doing and um they're coming down the feed and you get occasional you see like my buck pens are next to my house they'll randomly they'll they'll go up and grab some feed individually but it's often the herd is feeding at the same time yeah. um so that's just a little thing that i think of don't be afraid to add a pail or an extra feeder or something to just disperse that feed across your pen so that everybody's able to calmly you know consume what they need to consume for the day yeah i think that's um, a good point yep the uh, another thing I was thinking this year is I, I was examining pen where I we had a handful of losses and um, seventy percent of them came out of one pen, which was a light bulb for me. Like what? Not a light bulb, uh, red flag for me. Like what? What? Go look at this pen. What did you see prior? Um, try to make good notes in my fawning record book. Um, so we talk about aggressive dose and I'm not saying you were saying this. It was just what I was interpreting when I was listening to you talk was the aggressive dose are going to stress out the other dose in that pen, causing them to potentially have uh, not as good health in themselves and their fawns potentially going into it. But the way I was looking at this pen where I had these issues with uh, back in late May is the most aggressive doe that I had in that pen. I lost both her buck fawns within six days of being born. And, I, and I'm wondering, while we look at that aggressive doe, don't, I, I guess my point is, don't, I think, or don't forget that that stress is just not on the other does, it's on her. So does she need to be in a pen that's pushing... For this I'm using my farm examples, pushing three does per acre or and not that four that I'm trying to go for the rest of the farm. Or do I need to have her, I don't know, with an older doe and maybe I'm, you know, I, I don't know how that looks, but I got to manage her next year because she's been one of my best does. And record record keeping is critical. And you, you stated that in your first thing, because I'll be honest, when I went back to my notes last year, she had, she had two big healthy fawns and they're alive today as yearlings. 
and I didn't make any notes on her. Was she still aggressive last year? I don't, I, I don't have good enough notes. It's my, it's my fault. Um, or did it just happen to be she was in a pen with those she got along with fine, but she was literally, I mean, it's a, it's about a just shy of it. It's like 0.8 acres is this pen. And she was up and down chasing those, chasing them in a circle, the whole pen. Um, you know, like, like there wasn't enough, there was never enough room where she felt comfortable with the other does being around her. And these are just things I'm thinking. I'm not, I don't know if I'm right, but it sure seemed that way, which, which kind of, this is going to, this might make me sound, this, this might sound very stupid. Um, but I was in that pen and I, and I was thinking this idea and I, I think I almost called you the one day just to, just to run it by you, but then it sounded too stupid after I thought about it, but I'm just going to say it anyway now, but is there a, uh, you know, we, we talk about, you and I talk about density a lot, um, animals per acre in your pens. Um, but it got me wondering on certain animals, it, it, it's kind of the same thing, but I was wondering if it's not having enough space. Density creates more space for per animal, but is there a minimum amount of space that certain does need in a pen to be comfortable, even if they are at, let's just say they're at two or three does per acre, which is extremely low in our industry, I think, from what I understand. But I know guys doing it that are having extremely good health benefits from it. Um, but, uh, you know, is, is a half acre pen, which at my four does per acre would be two does, is that still too small for a doe like this? She's red. I'll call her red. 30, she is red 38. Is that too small? Does she need to be in a one acre pen or one and a quarter acre pen? Rather, you know, and I guess my point is, is there a minimum amount of space that a doe needs to feel comfortable, even at the densities I'm currently running? Is there like a, a fine line there? I, I don't know. I'm just, it's just a thought that came to my mind. Like, can she not be in a half acre pen or a 0.8 acre pen? Does she have to, does she do better in a two acre pen? Even though there might be six does in that two acre pen or seven does, does she do better? feeling like they are, you know, she can go up to the top in the woods and be not in sight of some of these does when she wants to go get ready to farm. Yeah. Just, just some notes. Those are two notes that I had. The, written down. Um, you were talking about, you know, that, that doe chasing other ones around and back and forth and back and forth. Um, the thing I always worry about when that happens is doe stepping on fawns and, yeah. you know, some people, um, ask like, Hey, I had this perfectly healthy fawn. And then, you know, the next day it was dead, nothing wrong. Right. And, uh, it got stepped on and you don't know it. Right. Um, I've had, I've had, uh, rib cage. Well, the, the bones are pliable. Right. So like they don't break, but like, there's like this spot, like perfect hoof size right in the side of a rib cage that just collapsed. And I, you know, you find a fawn dead and that, that's what happens right? Like yeah. that can certainly happen. You have a, a doe with all her weight, you know, getting thrust around. They, you see them sometimes they'll be running. They'll, they'll literally jump like yeah. a snake's coming after them. Right. But it's a yeah. fun. They'll, they'll cruise out of the way. Well, they can't always do that. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a possibility. And just, just think about, you know, like caloric burn, um, you know, how much calories it takes and, and cortisol levels for that doe just to be working around um, doing that and how much time that takes away from her tending to her fawns and taking care of them. Because I was like, it's a, if you, if you watch some of those really good does, um, they're relentless 
in their feedings. Like they will, they hang with those fawns, you know, the first couple of days anyway, they're just, they let them just, and you watch the does shrink. They physically go, you know, cause the nutrients just pour out of them. Um, and that's, that's good. I, I think uh, I'm not a fan of fat, fat does over the summer. It's okay to kind of start conditioned if you will, but man, I, I want, I want kind of big sort of skinny does come August because there's always big fun standing next to them. So one, one more point using continuing to use that red 38 is my example. Um, not in the non fine or non long questioning period. She is relatively calm when I go in to feed or, you know, around fawning season, I'll start doing a little more treats to just my does and uh, just to, just to get a good eye on them. Um, but in that, this year in that, say that week, the 10 day period of her fawning before and after that whole period, um, I, I couldn't walk up that pen without her getting up and going to the bottom of the pen. So right now I'm thinking, you know, I have on, on the top side of the doe side of my farm, our farm, I have, um, uh, four pens that if I go up my runway, the does can go up over the hill and just and get out of sight if need be. So right away I'm thinking, okay, she I need to make a note that she goes in a pen that she when she gets to that point, when me and the ranger or me and my dog, which is always with go up, she's not um she can get away without seeing us. She can go lay up in the woods, watch us from afar if she wants to, or just doesn't even know I came into the alleyway, you know, to do things. Um so it's just that's space, I guess, related. I uh I had interviewed uh, Scott Kent when he was working with Gene Fleece um, in 2015 and he had a really uh, kind of interesting point going back to your feeding comment and having an extra feeder um, he said they would have you know big pen we'll call it 10 acres right and there's there's uh, 35 or 40 40 bucks out there and you, he he always made it a point to have enough feeder for every deer to stand next to each other and feed at the same time. Um, because what would happen is the, all the bucks would come up, you know, one comes up, they all start coming up for the most part. And they all come up yeah. to feed at the same time. And if there wasn't enough room, you know, the less dominant ones would stand off. Well, the dominant ones when they were full would walk off and the entire herd would leave. And the ones less dominant would leave with them. And they wouldn't eat. Yep. He just made sure that he had that that whatever it was, fifty foot of feeder. Yep. Um, to feed, and and I know you have like you have uh, you know PVC feeders that extend out in various troughs, but it's same same goes for the does. Like it's not yep. just about the headgear. Like it's about the the herd feeding mentality, the herd animal. Um, you know that that kind of social structure within the within the uh, dynamic of the farm. So anyway, something to consider. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's, um, don't just walk in, feed in one feeder, walk away and go to the next pen. Just watch what they're doing. One feeder may be enough for a couple of those, you know, right. but you might have two does in there and one feeder is not enough, even if it's an eight foot feed bunk, because that one doe gets to that point of having fun. She's like, nobody's coming yeah. near this feeder. So go 20 yards to the left and, and put a trough, another trough. That's why I have those, uh, the, you know, the black troughs. I can move around. Uh, what are they called? Bunk you know what I mean? Just a black feed bunks. Yeah. Um, you know, I can add those, take them away, move them around the farm as needed. I always have a couple in the barn. Um, 
well, I don't have any barn right now because I'm using them all, but I always try to have some ready. Um, or they're in a pen, not really, even if they're out there not being used, it's better than, you know, not having enough feeders. All right. Um, I want to talk about, uh, this is a, this is a, a big topic, right? And it can go all sorts of places, but the, the importance of, um, advocating for, um, deer farming and ranching, um, and having a, a, I guess, a good presence on social media with the public legislators, et cetera, and how a state and or national association um, kind of play into that and the need for um, support of those entities. Because um, I think they all kind of kind of tie together. Um, comments, thoughts. <laughs> um, the short answer it's important that we advocate our industry to our politicians to the public um, so they know who we are they know what we do they know the benefits that we're bringing into our communities what you know a lot of that's financial um, you know expenses that we have going into our local economies um, that's that's important um the the way we present ourselves as individual farmers or, or ranchers you know with hunting with hunting operations um is important and in my opinion on an individual basis we cause a lot of confusion um a, a, about what we are and who we are um i'm going to use my Actually, let me, let me start. Let me, let me, we number one have to understand that there, this is for me kind of talking to myself. I need to understand that there are multiple, and we touched on this here today talking. Um, there are multiple enterprises that um, one can be involved in within the, the industry of deer farming, deer ranching. Um, that could be, a venison producer who, you know, in our state, it's mostly red deer that I'm aware of that are producing venison for food consumption. Uh, there could be a urine producer that's producing urine, hunting scents and lures. Um, and then there's the breeders and ranchers. And I'm sure I'm missing other things that you can bring up. But where I'm at is on the hunting side and managing properties, private properties with private deer for hunting. Um, and I, I tend to get a little, not frustrated, but I think the deer farming community as a whole sometimes forgets that we are, most of us are part of the hunting industry and we need to remember that in, in, when we post stuff on social media, when we talk to our community, when we talk to legislators, all that stuff I said before. And what I mean by the confusion is, so me as, as a ranch owner, that I, 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 I stock animals, I manage animals on a hunting property, and I stock animals on a hunting property. Um, one thing I do not do 
is stock bottle-fed animals on a hunting property. Uh, um, I, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to go into the, the details of that, but I, I just don't stock bottle-fed tame animals on a hunting preserve. So when we see lots of bottle-fed animals, especially on the, on the buck side of things, um, I think we start to cause confusion for the outsiders looking into our industry. Well, touchy stuff. But someone on the outside sees you hand feeding or bottle feeding a buck. And you say, what do you do with those animals? Oh, we sell them to hunting preserves. Um, that, this doesn't happen a lot, but it certainly appears to happen more than it actually does because of the social media presence of, of our community, our deer farming community. Um, I, if you're involved in the hunting and the stocking side of, and the ranch stocking side of this industry, um, I don't see a reason why you should be bottle feeding bucks um, as a whole. Uh, you know, if you have a buck that's going to stay a pet or a breeder, um, that's that's your decision to make. I don't I don't have an issue with that. There's there's on farm issues you're going to have to be concerned about with bottle fed animals. Um, but in a sense, I think it causes confusion. You know, it's it's it 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 appears as more of a pet industry when we're doing those things than the hunting and land management and, and, and the in, you know industry that we actually really are. Um, I personally won't go um you know i i won't bottle feed bucks for any reason um if mom can't take care of them then it's nature is going to take its its role on my farm or our operations um uh that's one of the major issues that i've had in my mind lately there's more why don't you chime in to give me a little more to go off of yeah so when i when i think about you know the industry as a whole, I, I, you can wrap it in a, in a big blanket, right? And, and you touched on a few of those, those um, different types of, of operations. And I think it, it is important to look at them that way. And uh, each of us has to remind ourselves and others that there, there's multiple different business entities within the deer farming world, right? And you touched, you touched on some of those. And, you know, I think most of our interactions um, happen on on social media with each other because of uh, the distance that we are apart. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of commonality in in what we do. Um, having said that, and and participating in um, interactions with the public on a regular basis for you know more than more than ten years. And when I say the public, I mean general public. I mean hunters. I mean, legislators, I mean, regulators, um, anybody that's not a deer farmer or rancher, right? Um, I can, I can attest to the fact that the confusion is real for them, that even when we explain what it is we do, those, those, uh, images and those images are public, whether you're in a private group or not, like they're, they're public images, like people can screenshot all sorts of things. Um, you know, I, 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 and I'll give you an example. I was perusing through a, a website and it, um, it had various pictures with descriptions of things. And on the bottom, there was the, the host of the website and 
uh, he was standing next to a, a, a giant buck, right? This is obviously a farm, you know, farm deer in a pen. And right below that, it said hunting opportunities available or something along those lines. That battle has been waged for ever since I started. And they, the, the vernacular that our opponents use has gotten better and better and better. So, you know, we've heard things like canned hunts, right? And we fought that for, for years. And, you know, many, many, I, I, I know this, you know, many of the folks that um, are, are in the industry remember that and many were not here. Um, and it's important that we don't forget about the history of where we are and where we've, we've, where we're going, right? So having, having advocates be able to articulate what the kind of grand vision for uh, the industry is, I think is very important. And that if you're, if you're not uh, necessarily experienced in that, it, it would probably wise to, to listen to those folks. I think there's some, some great people out there that can really, you know, tell you about, you know, what, what a deer farm is, the purpose of it, how it interacts with certain other uh, entities within the servant, you know, the farm servant industry, and and those types of things can be um, can be looked upon, you know, with great joy because those people are doing a service for everyone. Um, so that's that's really important, you know the the barrier that is our responsibility as. Um, we'll call us deer farmers. So like, I'm a, I'm a deer farmer. I don't, I don't have a ranch. We don't um, directly participate in, in, uh, you know, hunting here at our place. Um, but my job as a deer farmer is to raise a quality animal, the best quality animal that I can and provide a product to someone that wants to buy it in a, in a really ethical manner. And by, by me, advocating that and and doing that i am a, a piece in the overall you know uh, farmed farmed industry or and and slash ranch industry uh in the servant world so my interaction is with a guy like you right um you're a ranch you know i want to have a product that you would be uh happy and proud to spend money with me with but also fits the um kind of overall goals and ideals that you have built at your place. And if it, if I don't meet that, well, then I don't have a product for you and I don't have a business. I might have a business for somebody else, right? But we have to, we have to be very careful because the, we are, we are this tiny little, very niche marketplace, right? And while we have great economic impact and we have, you know, relatively decent numbers, um, you know, we're, we're small in comparison to let's just compare ourselves to, you know, we'll call it the wild um, hunting industry, right? And, um, you know, there's there's potentially millions of people that disagree with with how we do things, right? Or, or what we are. And, you know, our, our, jo- our job is not necessarily to convince them that they should like it, but it's to make them neutral parties in it, right? Or at least advocate for, for freedom of, of us to do that and potentially see the benefits in it. So I'll give you one benefit. On disease fronts, such as chronic wasting disease, our industry has a huge opportunity and a big role to play 
in the development of technologies that ultimately advance disease prevention um, and management techniques for everyone to use. And we see that happening today. We see technologies being born of our industry that will ultimately have great ramifications across all animals, whether they are behind the fence, outside of the fence, how it, what doesn't matter the side of the fence they're on. And so there's, there's certainly a, a, an opportunity for us to show people that we're, you know, not necessarily a one trick pony that we are, are ultimately caring for the animals in the, in the greatest possible way. And when you start looking at things and taking a step outside of your, your little bubble that you live in and, and try to look at this from a, a bigger picture standpoint, um, I, I find, I find that compelling. And I think other people uh, can and, and should. So, yeah, no, I, the, the disease um, on a disease front and the, and the technology and the research and the progress we're making on that front is a is a, a very good um, point to advocate in regard to our industry. Um, when I look at our properties which we are we have breeding herds but we also have the, the majority of what we do is, is a hunting operation and i say hunting operation because that's how we pay our bills it's really we're able to manage our land private land and i've said this before private land with private deer so that we can retain the income to then further our management and maybe even expansion of of keeping our land wildlife friendly and managing it not just for deer our, our deer but also for the native wildlife that's here. And that, that's a big goal of mine is to manage both, not, even my breeding facility with, I'm leaning more towards the environmentally friendly is one way to put it, but wildlife friendly as well. Um, you know, and whether that's rabbits in your deer pens because of your forage that you have in there, or if it's birds using it, whatever that's, but these are things you can actually talk about with legislators. Look at what I'm doing with our private land um, with private deer. And, you know, while our property that we have now wasn't purchased because of deer, it, it, our family was in other businesses, but we are definitely maintaining and growing this property because of private deer. And, you know, when I talk to people about that end of things and the fact that we, and I said, I just said it, we can retain that income. We get that income. Um, as private landowners to further the management of our ground, that's a, of our land and keep it wildlife friendly. It's not becoming houses. It's not being developed. It's not being butchered because we need to cut every slice of timber to pay for it. You know, it's not being whatever it's, it's not being used for anything but deer and wildlife. And thankfully we have the private deer that we can doing it that way. It's, this is controversial, but, I'm just say it out loud and as I'm talking to you, but it's a our game departments get hundred dollars to manage the public ground. We're getting our hundred dollars to manage our private ground with private deer. It's the, it's the same concept, which a lot of people hate that concept. But as private landowners, we can we can do this. But a lot of people love it when you actually tell them what you're doing. We are not just putting deer in a pen and shooting them. And, and that might sound harsh or might sound people might not want to even hear me say that, but that's not what we're doing. We're managing private deer on private land. And um, it, it, it sells well, um, whether it's to politicians or whether it's to my hunters that come and they know what we do. They know we introduce genetics. They know we got 
a breeding population on a preserve that derived from genetics we introduced, and we continually supplement those genetics on on the on the preserve preserve hunting property. Um, we need to promote the the land conservation, the land management part a little more because as long as we're doing a good job with it. Now, if we're pissed poor in our land management, we're pissed poor in our in our animal management. Um, that that's not going to get us anywhere. We need to have quality places that uh, we can promote from the farming side of it, the land conservation side of it, even the benefit to the other wildlife besides our, our deer that we own on these properties. Um, I, I think that's something we've been trying to promote and um, it, it sells well. I mean, who can argue against, you know, preserving land, uh, managing it for wildlife. It's just the fact that we need these private deer to maintain this uh, without having to bring more and more outside money in and number. And, and the other thing outside money, not a single dime of taxpayer dollars is used to to do this, um, generally speaking. Um, so those are benefits I see. And I think that needs to be promoted more. And it gets that's why I said the confusion is if if you can understand what I just said with what we're trying to do and, and a lot of other guys are trying to do in their hunting properties. That that is still deer farming because these are private deer. So it's still categorized as deer farming. Um, now there's you and I could go deeper into the the. the different enterprises again of what that looks like but um the sorry to go back to it but the bottle fed bucks or standing scratching the ears of your bucks and then promoting hunting um it it that's where the confusion is we're not doing that in our properties and a lot of guys are not doing that but damn it seems to be the most proliferate for most prolific thing you see sometimes on our on our social media pages and that's not to knock the person that bottle fed a buck kept it as a pet Maybe it was a breeder as long term. I'm not. I'm not knocking every single situation, but as a whole, um, you know the 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 tame animal aspect of it, but the bottle fed. You know, um, there's a difference between a low pressured animal like on a hunting preserve and a tame bottle fed raised animal that um, you know on the farm. They're they're very different animals. So promote the land management, promote the private ownership. I think those are good things that just need to be sold the right way. Can you? Can you comment how the interaction with the deer farmer and then ultimately their maybe state and national association play into that? Say that again. The, um, the interaction of the deer farmer slash rancher and, and the importance and how the interaction plays together with a state and or a national association and the importance of that. I think it's extremely important. We, we, because we need to be on the same page. We need to understand what each other is doing. Like we talk about different enterprises. If I'm going to go be a, a leader of a, of a, an association or you are somebody else's, make sure you understand where the, the, the hunting operation land owner is coming from with how they're doing what they do with private deer. Then make sure, you know, maybe there's breeders that only sell to other breeders, understand what, what they are doing. Then go to your urine producers, understand what they are doing. So that way you, you are well-rounded and understand that this isn't just one thing. This industry isn't just one thing. It's, it's a multitude of things, and they're all a little different. Even though we're all interconnected by an industry or an association, we're also pretty different in the ways that we do things. So if, if you're strictly a deer farmer and you only sell breeding stock and you don't ever go visit the, the landowner, who also has some breeding stock used for a completely different purpose and 
how it does it, or they do it, he or she, um, you are you are not going to be able to, in my opinion, um, fully promote and support and and get and fully educate our um, the people that need educated on what our industry really is. We're not one thing; we're lots of things, and um, and that's where we. I got to watch my criticism of things I don't like. Well, maybe I don't realize that. Oh, they're they're not. They have nothing to do with landowners and and stocking and hunting operations and stuff like that maybe they're a niche little market that they've created for themselves maybe they want a little small farm with a few animals and they want to treat them like pets and sell antlers sell urine um maybe sell a little venison but they they don't want to um maybe not want to but they're not going to participate in the landowner stocking hunting side of our industry so um that relationship with all parties as a, as an association and as a, as a, well, to your point, as, as the rancher or farmer, that communication with your associations um, is very important. So they know who you are and what you are doing, you know, because we're all busy. All of our associations, at least in our state of Pennsylvania is volunteer work. You know, there's not, we're not being paid to go um, travel around to operations throughout the year and, um, get a full understanding. So there needs to be phone calls. There needs to be interactions. Go to the events, you know, express who you are. That way you're also, you know, if you're a landowner who's just managing private deer and maybe you don't do any stocking except for maybe initial couple years of stocking your property, you are still part of this industry. So go, go be a part of the events so that we know who you are. So we can stand up for you. So we, I say we, so the associations, the industry leaders can stand up for you and recognize who you are. Um, and, uh, you know, same on the other end. If you're, if you're just selling antlers or just selling urine, like we need, you need to have that communication. Is that what you're looking for? It is. In the question. Good, good, gotcha. good points. You're up. Um, completely flipping the subject. Uh, the next thing I had written, uh, the statement reads, maximizing supplemental forage in your deer pens. So I'm going to go back to the breeding operations, not like my the land management I do on the 600 acres of our hunting operation, but just in a breeding operation, a farm setting. Um, are there ways, what, what are some of the ways and do you feel it's important or not to, to supplement with forages, clover, chicory, there's all kinds of, all kinds of plantings you can do species. Um, I have my thoughts on this because I've been thinking about it a lot lately um, for multiple reasons. One good reason is the feed prices t- today, but that's just a, that's kind of a trigger for it to be something that's long-term utilized on my farm. So I'm just curious what your opinion is on, on supplemental forage, not, not just the grasses. I'm not talking about the orchard grass in my pens. I'm talking more of a, planted supplemental or seeded supplemental forages that maybe are used daily or maybe they're used uh infrequently a couple times a week you know like letting deer out in a yard or planting or runway or stuff like that um clover good (laughs) (laughs) um so i um i have raceways in between every one of my pens so there's no I have no common fence anywhere on the farm, right? There's no, there's no pastures that touch each other. Um, and, and I, I 
greatly underutilize those um, on half of the farm because I don't have, I, I, I didn't set it up where it would be easy for me to like scoot deer out there and do plantings out there. But um, I think that if you have raceways, it's a great opportunity for you to plant those raceways with something that um, typically you, you wouldn't inside the pasture and use those as a, you know, a supplemental grazing. So you know, let's just say you have a, you know, a couple hundred foot raceway that's 16 feet wide or 12 foot wide. You can get some serious forage out of that. And like for me, um, alfalfa does not grow in my pens. It, it just doesn't grow in my pens. Uh, well, because the deer, as soon as it, if I can get it to germinate, as soon as it does, it just doesn't have a time to establish root base, it's dead. Um, so I think having some alfalfa planted out there would be awesome because that's not a, that's not a forage that I have. Um, do I do that? No, I don't. Um, and I, and I should, but for me, the, the, um, like for me, supplemental feeding, um, like I don't, I don't feed hay, but in the winter and that's it. I just don't feed it over the summer. Um, my, I have, in my opinion, I have low enough pen densities that I can get, um, I can get a, a great stand of clover growing. And we just have like a couple small varieties that seem to do well in this climate and soil. And um, I just use the mower to manage those and, and that's it. So, um, you know, pen, dens pen density fixes almost everything, almost everything. I think pen density fixes. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, the only other, the only other supplements, and this might be outside of the scope, um, you know, like cut, cut leaves are very, they're utilized a lot by some and they're like super underutilized by others. Uh, I'm a super underutilized person. Um, I, I think, you know, if you can, if you have, especially oak, I don't know what it is about uh, fresh oak leaves, but stinking deer love those things. And it's a great, it's a great uh, thing for them to munch on. Um, you know, we, we eat a lot of watermelon in my house and like the rinds, those deer love watermelon rinds and um, any of those, those things. Like, I think all that stuff is good. Variety is a good thing uh, within reason. So, you know, like, our fruit that we don't want to eat anymore, you know, might have like a bunch of, of, um, you know, grapes that are just like squishy and soft. Well, the deer love that stuff, you know, planting, planting, uh, summer squash, zucchini, stuff like that. Um, the deer love that stuff. And, you know, obviously apples towards the end of summer and fall is one of the greatest feed sources that you can give a deer. So if you have an apple orchard by and they'll let you come and get seconds off the ground or they'll, you can buy crates cheap, which I can't do that anymore because everybody's a master cider maker around here or whatever. And um, you, you can't buy that stuff cheap anymore. But I used to get, um, you know, like crates, like four by four crates with thousands of apples for like 40 bucks. And I would just feed those deer as much as I could give them. You know, I'd throw yeah. I'd throw like 40 apples in a pen and they would just house those things. 
and, and they loved them. They absolutely loved them. Anyway, um, I try to keep it simple for me, um, back to the, back to the pasture itself, the, um, the effort that I have to put in to turn over soil and plant and stuff is not worth it. Um, I have, I have too much outside labor that needs to go into that. So I'm an overseeder and I am primarily, uh, like 90 plus percent clover. Um, I use white Dutch and Ladino. That's all I use. So yeah. that answer. No, you mean, you, uh, kind of, um, I'll get, into some my hippie talk. I'll get into some of my hippie talk here in a second about mm. what I've been thinking. <laughs> like, so like soil but, improvements and stuff like using like charcoal and no, no, no. Um, so you made some good points on the su- supplemental outside sources of, of bringing in and, and, you know, not hand feeding, but hand introduce, introducing that as a, as a daily treat or that type of, of supplement. Yep. Um, I've, I've been, I don't know if struggling is the right way to put it, but you know, I look at our, our hunting property. Um, and we have just shy of 600 acres on that property. And we've talked in the past how, you know, I got the food plots, I got timber management, um, those sort of things. And I don't have any, well, I don't have any grain supplemental feed on the preserve since, uh, end of March. And it's kind of an experiment, but it's also, there's so much diversity of forage out there, whether it's in our fields that we planted or in the timber cuts that are, you know, say under five years old um, in, in their regeneration, that I began to research the benefits of diversity of diets in livestock and ruminants and that type of thing. And basically what I'd like to do is somehow add more diversity in the plant life that that is on the breeding side of things, on the breeding farm. Um, so to your point, like my, my raceways, I have a big main raceway that goes through my doe side. And now there's the tracks, you know, the, the, the four wheeler or the ranger tracks in the center, but you got the, you know, you still have half of it utilized in the forage. And in the past, I let that kind of just become grass just for ground cover. And I didn't utilize it. I mean, I would let those out every now and then you get some little trees that grow and they go pick them off. But I've, um, I want to, I've started to go back to transfer. That's a little more of a clover base. There's some, there's some wild vetch like hairy or purple vetch. Um, but there's these other plants that potentially could have medicinal purposes on your deer if they're allowed to be on them frequently. So I'm trying to see, is there enough space in my farm as it is now to not just use my runways, but maybe I'm going to use my catch areas on my barns. Uh, which are now stone, which is going to be, whole, it would have to be a bigger project um, than what I'm going to do this year. But looking at guys who have farms that maybe their catch areas, their holding pens around the barn, maybe they're not, um, you know, ours is stone and shale, but maybe it's dirt and they just let it go up in grass and they maybe weed whack it before they work deer or whatever. <clears throat> Could you go in there and frost seed some clover or some multi-species blends? Um, I don't believe in turning over the soil in my pens. I just don't do it. Um, but I certainly can do some overseeding and some herbicide to maybe reduce the amount of grass and increase the amount of forbs or clovers or legumes, whatever that is. Um, but 
on a lot of farms, what I see is alleyways and their, their you know, the, the areas around their barns, their whole, their handling facilities. Could you utilize that for the, this, this forage treat, if you want to call it, but you know, however you would, however it would work for your farm to give them access to it. Um, not only maybe it does it help supplement the diversity of their diet. Um, because every time I let a deer out my runway, they want to come out. It, it, it's, there's a reason. It ain't just because they, they want to come out and, and eat on that. So I don't think even on our, as good as our feed is on the farm, I personally feel like I'm lacking diversity for an overall healthy animal that then is going to transition a portion of them transition into that hunting area that their, their, their diets aren't being drastically, um, uh, changed in a short period of time. Um, on top of that, I'm looking at taking yard areas and even some pen space where maybe I go in, this is years down the road, but I'm thinking even getting a really small three to five foot no-till planter that I can actually drill blends into half acre pens or that are in between like say two acre and a half pens. Um, but how can I utilize that more? I think there's a benefit not only to the does, but especially these young fawns. If I could get them in their foraging um, about now, three to four or five weeks old, when they're really starting to come down to the feeders, but I think they'd do much better, be much healthier if I could get them on diverse forages, whether that's every other night where, you know, say a doe and their pens and their fawns get released into this pen. It's designed so I can push them right back in. Then the pen on the other side can get in the following night. And just maybe an hour a night or something like that while I'm feeding, let these pens go in and then push them out. It takes pen space, which we've talked about a lot. But um, I, the craziest idea was, could you have a deer farm that you could not have to have any true grain supplemental feed? I don't think that's possible in, in my situations, but could I reduce my grain feed by 20, 30%? you know, or, or more or less. What does that look like? Um, I'm going to try to experiment in the future with that. I just was curious on your thoughts. Cause I, I, I think I'm lacking. I think, I don't think I'm lacking diversity in my diets of my animals as compared to the ones that get to live and grow out on our, on our hunting area. Um, so, yeah. um, that's, that's, that's just what I'm thinking. You know, yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, kind of, walking through that thought experiment um, where you have, you know, some, some people that have no vegetation at all in their pastures. Yeah. Um, that could be uh, from a geographical standpoint where, you know, the, like the guys in South Texas, it's like rock and dirt and they don't have a choice. There might be a couple cactus plants, right? or some like 50 year old Oak trees that are like 12 feet tall. Right. Cause yep. they get under, it's like desert, right. They get no rain. Um, Even at low densities, they're going to be hard pressed to create a forage on those pens. Yeah. Not, nothing grows. Yep. It's just not yep. hospitable to, to life. Kudos to those guys for getting deer to, to live there. Um, but you know, as far as, as far as like no- Northern Midwest uh, farmers, um, it, it's interesting to to think about like the benefits and the costs of of what you're talking about. So you know, and and each operation is a little different, right? Like a lot of guys, they want to just make sure that those deer are getting as much of their 
their feed, their hard feed grain as they can because they they measure performance in antlers, right? Antler inches. Um, and I think that um, that's one way to do it, right? There's certainly another way where you look at um, your inputs as far as um, medications, supplements, um, and things of that nature that add cost and labor to your farm and probably reduce the overall health and performance of your animals. So you have this, this medium, which you need to find. And I don't think that it's in question that if you have great diversity in diet, that you're probably, that you probably have created a very low stress space for that diversity to happen and that your animals will, will benefit from that. You know, generally, generally in nature, your, your, um, highest, uh, areas of diversity are, are edges, right? So you go from canopy to, to pasture, canopy to field. And on those edges is where nature really takes off. Um, so I think, you know, I think looking at, um, things like permaculture where they have systems designed to go, you know, uh, various plant species in height and sun and canopies that you could tailor, um, you could tailor your pens through the way they're set up with, uh, let's forget about the animals for a second, the way they're set up in, in normal everyday nature, right? So like how the sun hits them during certain times of the year and um, building those edges, right? And, and then pick out certain species of plants that obviously are beneficial to deer and, and add them in and create these really unique small habitats. Now, the question is, is can you keep your animal density low enough that the deer don't destroy them? Because that's what deer do, right? They, they, they destroy things when they're, when there's too many of them. Um, so what does that look like? And, and we're probably talking about like <sighs> grapes, raspberries, briars, you know, a lot of like sapling stuff, all, probably all the things you see in your clear cuts on your ranch um, are probably good things. You would just try to scale that down into a smaller place. And then you come to the next place. And that is that we all, the overwhelming majority of people built their operations a long time ago and they never ever ever built them for what we're talking about now they are simply not constructed for that they are a more factory style-esque farm right and they've they've that's just how the the fence is constructed the land is built up and we're now thinking about these things trying to alter what's there and that's a that's a that's a great thing right um like i don't it, it was these Sorry, you were cutting out a little bit. The, to me, it was it was the, it was designed built on one hundred percent reliance on your alfalfa and grain oh. feeds. Um, and I same with mine. Yep. Um, to to your point of, you made a really good point, and this is the challenge is, or where you need to manage is that 
I don't care if I have four does per acre. I can't continuously keep them on a, on a, say I have a six or seven way blend of forages that I plant that are, that are highly, you know, nutritious, palatable, all that. I can't continually keep them on there because even at four does per acre, they're going to knock that stuff out in a short period of time, whether that's, whether that's a couple of days, a week or two or whatever, it's not going to last long-term. So it becomes these transitionaries. Can you, can I design their, I don't even know how to categorize this yet. I'm just thinking, but like, like say their main pen of, of living is my, my orchard grass, a little bit of clover sparse throughout. Um, and then next to it, it's this planting. And then, you know, maybe next to that is um, like my alley, my, my double, uh, my breeding farm is completely double fenced right now. I would love to just let does out in there for a half hour at a time, keep an eye on them. Cause I have electric on the outside of that. So I can, um, you know, there, there's still the goal of no, interaction with wild deer is why the double fence is there but could i move them in for a half hour each night and uh and then push them right back they're not staying there so they constantly have contact with that perimeter fence but right now that is exactly what you said it's it's uh ragweed it's it's raspberries it's all that brushy browse that you would find in our clear cuts is in my double fenced area um so i'm looking right now at uh introducing not introducing (laughs) installing some extra gates to allow for that and then just push them the way my pens is on i can push them right back in they'd probably be right back in the same pen they are in certain pens um but it can't be a continually i shouldn't say it can't be i'm not looking to have continual forages or deer in pens that continuously stay in those pens with diverse forages i just it won't work with deer um i don't think it'd even work if you had one per acre you know, I mean, you'll get clovers and stuff to go, but like if you're actually planting, a, you know, two or three species of clover, two or three species of this, two or three species of that in one planting, um, I want it to get established yeah. and then allow them to go in once it's once it's, you know, established, they can get more forage out of it over a month or two month period of time. Um, it's a complicated process to do it or it's going to be it's going to require some changes if I want really want to do it on on you know animals and how many densities and all that um leaving pens vacant just for forage i gotta i really gotta see the benefit in doing so instead of taking that two acre or that say that five acres total within the whole farm or six acres you know could i be running 10 or 15 more does or am i going to save it for forage for health purposes and all that it's it's a it's a balancing act but i definitely am going to implement more just don't know to what extent we're going to take it to is it going to be a, a tractor with a no-till drill and i got 10 acres on a 30 acre breeding farm that it's just exclusively um in diverse forages that are periodically used and the another thing i don't know i'm not educated enough on this subject to to know is what is my long-term benefit so say i'm say i have say i have a an acre pen and then next that i have a quarter acre that i did this you know quote-unquote diverse planting um, if I'm putting those deer in there every other night, say it can only handle maybe every other night for an hour. Um, there, there's certainly some benefit to it. Now there might be some, some negatives I got to keep an eye on, but is there long-term benefits to just periodically letting them in there and, and out, you know, or is it just virtually all just short-term, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. I certainly think there's benefits, but it's got to be, I can't just let them in there and leave them there. You know, I'll have 
I, I would assume I'd have some some diarrhea issues, some bacterial, uh, uh, just some stomach issues with that tran- hard of a transition. So if it's a soft transition that could continually happen time over time over time, um, where they're just getting a periodic, you know, getting a little bite, like let them into my runways now and then put them back in a half hour later or an hour later. Um, just, just things I'm circling through my head to try and create a healthier animal, a healthier environment on the farm. Um, and that's the goals. If I achieve them, I don't, I don't know if that's achievable, but you know, I'm not talking about getting rid of my grain, my supplemental, my true feed, but how can I, um, gain more with what I have, you know, from a forage standpoint. Yeah, you could probably get to the point where if you were comfortable with established pastures and you knew the nutritional requirements could be met, um, you could probably limit instead of free choice grain, you could probably just say, look, I'm given two pounds per head yeah. or whatever. And, and they would just naturally know that that's all they were getting. Um, yeah, it's really. Uh, I, I wrote down infrastructure costs because when you're when you're looking at when you're looking at deer and talking the way we're talking, um, that is a, a big concern uh, because you you know the animals themselves ultimately justify that cost of fencing and gates, and fencing and gates is expensive. Um, but you're you're depreciating that over a period of time. Right. And I'm not talking about taxes. I'm talking about the cost of that um, or that CapEx cost when you're building those. So um, you're going to do it faster with more animals if all things are even, but you have to look at those other inputs. Right. And, and that's, you know, for me, I I, like, just while you were talking, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't really want to let a, you know, a pen of deer out into a, let's call it a raceway for a half hour and then push them back in. I want to just, I want to have like a automatic button in my barn that opens, <laughs> that opens 16 gates 16. Yeah, yeah. at one time at night, they go out there for the evening, they do their thing. And in the morning I come in and I just push each of the pens back in and I close those gates up and maybe that is done periodically or you figure out what what it needs to be um is the is the increased and this is where the raceway has the most value because from a structural side of things um while the raceway costs twice as much to build up front the utility of being able to use it for feed for movement has a ton of value but the fact that you don't have to replace it twice as fast is also a big bonus. So anybody that has common fence knows that those get destroyed over time, uh, especially if you have bucks in them. Heck, double fencing like with a raceway and they'll, they destroy those too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so like you start doing those kind of cost analysis and you know what, what is that what is that happy medium but i think it's a great um it's a great thought process and you know we can all do we can all do better here <laughs> i um 
I, I, <laughs> there's a lot of times I wish that my ground that I was able to like plant stuff, right? Like literally like turn ground over and, and, and do not necessarily normal farm practices, but like general like work, but I can't, I just, there's like, I'm not, if anybody comes near my place with equipment, <laughs> I will run them off because there are so many rocks here that it, it just gets messy. And, and over like over time, I've seen um, my lack of management produce rocks coming out of the ground because there's erosion and I'm trying to reverse that. Right. I want to stop the rocks coming out of the ground because it just creates more work for me. I don't want to do that. So anyway, that's all I have on that. I'm good on that front. Did you do two questions or three? I only did two, even though we told each other that we we're going to do three. Anything else you want to, want to cover or do you have you got, did you write a third did you write a third one down no i didn't want to embarrass you <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> no i don't um i don't really have anything else how you're how you do you have another question written down no i'm good okay my my other third thing was worked into a conversation so it's obsolete at this point sure how um how you're doing so far uh good uh the deer in the breeding pens um my fawns are okay i had some issues earlier that we talked about um but everything seems to be getting along fine now i have um one doe left to go as a backup to ai um and she's gonna go any day now her the other i missed two on ai this year the first backup fawned last night or yesterday afternoon and the last one, I, I, I suspect she's going to go this week the way she's looking. Um, and then all the fawns will have been born. Um, bucks are doing good. I have, um, I'm, uh, I'm very happy with my yearling crop. Um, they, uh, again, I don't, I'm not talking 200 inch yearlings. I'm just talking solid, healthy body condition. You know, I have one who's a little runty, but you know, um, overall the condition of those bucks is, is really good. The antler growth is, um, I'm very happy with that. My two-year-olds kind of sucked. Um, for being honest, um, either they're just a little taking a little longer to get going or whatnot. They're, they're not, they're not terrible. I just, they could be better. Um, but my three-year-olds are coming along. I have a little bit of, I have a little more non-typical in my three-year-olds from a buck I used uh, a Texas T-Son I had back in the day. Um, they're big. They're going to be fine, but they're just, I don't know. I'm just getting more and more picky with my buck crop. And uh, there's some things that I, um, some some things I'm seeing in those bucks has already been eliminated from the herd uh, from a doe perspective. Um, but uh, they're going to be big. I'm going to have some good three-year-olds. Uh, the preserve, from what I've seen out there, like it's there's so much forage going with all this rain. I mean, my fields are doing well the timber is doing great so it's like you know there's a bunch of deer not a bunch of deer but there's you know there's deer out there and it's you take a drive at night and you're you might see a doe here and there and a couple of bucks but um everybody what's that if you're lucky yeah. it's like a rainforest have... oh i lost you 
We we finally uh, we finally. You know, I, I jumped my other, not sitting there actually watching. I got you now. You hear me? I can hear you, and it looks like our video still there. Is back. Yeah, I'm here. You got me. Oh, got you. Got you now. Here we go, yeah. and we're back. And we're back. Ah, overall things are okay. I mean, we had a lot of rain, more rain than I would like. Um, uh. I don't mind rain. I don't want to complain because it's gonna stop soon. In July and August, I'm sure I'm I'm up for a few weeks of, of no rain. So just trying to manage that. But overall, apparently we have a unhealthy connection right now. Things are good. Can you hear me? Sorry about this, folks. We are uh, we are lo- we are loose on our connection. There you go. I got you. Hey, there I was, was gonna say at least we finished our main conversation. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah the bulk the bulk of it um, yeah. was good for the most part. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, well, I think we'll we'll wrap up. We uh, we had a good little gab session. So I appreciate you taking the time to hop on with me. I enjoy these conversations a bunch and we'll do it again here soon. Awesome. Thanks, man. Hey, stay tuned everybody for another episode of North American Deer Talk.